Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In mid-August, a UN human rights body called the Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination said that up to one million ethnic Uyghurs in China were imprisoned in massive internment camps. Subsequent reporting in places like the Wall Street Journal offered a degree of confirmation that Uyghurs were being rounded up seemingly at random and sent to, quote, re-education centers, where they were forced to chant Communist Party slogans, study the speeches of Xi Jinping, and also subjected to torture. Uyghurs are a religious and ethnic minority in China. The majority practice a form of Sunni Islam, and most live in the Xinjiang province in northwest China. They have been the subject of discrimination for decades, but abuses against this community seem to be accelerating. On the line with me to discuss the situation is Sophie Richardson, the China Director for Human Rights Watch. She explains the methods by which the Chinese government is repressing this community, including mass internment at these so-called re-education centers. We also discussed the history of China's repression of ethnic minorities, including against Tibetans. And finally, we discussed what the rest of the world can do to help protect vulnerable Uyghurs today. This, I think, is a useful introduction to a topic that has gotten some, but I think not nearly enough attention in recent weeks. And I think you will appreciate my conversation with Sophie Richardson. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com and use the contact button to send me your thoughts about people I should interview or topics I should cover. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Oh, and a big thank you to everyone who's leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. It's a really useful way to help grow the audience by leaving reviews. You increase the search rankings of the show in iTunes, which helps uh, introduce it to more people who are looking for interesting foreign policy podcasts. All right, now here is my conversation with Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, our research shows that it's a wide variety of people who are being detained for everything from being perceived by local authorities as being overly religious uh, which is a very loosely defined concept, uh, all the way through to people who are being detained because they've spent time overseas or they have uh, relatives who are living overseas. Now, I think it's very important to stress that none of the people who are being detained 
have in any way been determined to have broken a law. And that, in fact, being detained in these political education camps has no legal basis. There's no grounds under any of the relevant Chinese law to deprive people of their liberty. So I think that's a very important uh, fact to get out there. Well, what justification does the Chinese government use then to detain these people? If if, well, they, if the there's no thing, like patent of legal legitimacy to do what they're doing, um, how do they explain themselves? Well, to the extent that they have explained themselves, oh, you know, they've, yeah. they've, they have largely spent the last year denying that such camps exist. And off the back of the recent Committee to Eliminate Racial Discrimination review at the UN, uh, China did finally admit that some of these facilities were in fact for vocational training. Uh, which is a remarkable claim when you find yourself asking, for what jobs are people being forced to learn Mandarin? You know, what what job are you qualified for after weeks and weeks of being forced to to study Xi Jinping thought? You know, do do small children and quite elderly people really need vocational training? And really, why is it that people can't leave and go home at the end of the day? You know, it's a pretty it's a pretty shallow explanation. So, More broadly, mm-hmm. the Chinese government will justify its policies in Xinjiang as essential to combating terrorism. And indeed, we're connecting the development of the political education camps to the latest, what the Chinese Communist Party calls strike hard campaign, which has been underway for a couple of years, purportedly in the name of combating terrorism. What do we know about what happens in these uh, centers? Our research is showing that people are forced to live on a sort of military style schedule. They're made to get up early. They have to look after, you know, the facilities that they're living in and that they spend most of their days uh, being forced to either study Xi Jinping or other Chinese Communist Party uh, dogma and or study Mandarin uh, to sort of break them of the habit of using the Uyghur language or the languages that other ethnic Turkic minorities use. Uh, there are, of course, no opportunities to do things like pray uh, or observe other religious or cultural uh, practices that this community would observe if they were not detained. I think it's also very important to stress the extent to which Uyghurs' lives are being restricted outside detention, too. You know, really being a, a practicing Muslim in any way outside the confines of how the state allows people to practice has effectively become illegal. There are enormous intrusions into people's everyday lives by party and government officials, up to including having those officials move into people's homes for days or weeks at a time to observe their behavior. And we spend a lot of time. Yeah, I know. Communist party officials actually move into the homes of ethnic minority Uyghurs to determine if they're praying too much. Like it, that it, is like, that is correct. It's a program called Fang Huijiu, uh, which has officials. It's called the the Becoming Families program, um, and we've written about it so so people can look this up on our website. And that's it so involves, Orwellian. Yes, it involves it involves local officials, either from the government or from the party, staying with Uyghur families uh, for a couple of days at a time over a period of weeks to observe their behavior at home to see just how 
religious they are, to see just how Uyghur they are, to see how just how politically loyal they are or aren't. And a lot of that information winds up being reported back into police databases, some of which we've documented are used to identify who ought to be detained. You know, the Chinese government is throwing enormous resources at determining who it thinks is not politically loyal in the region. And those who come out on the wrong end of that scale are being subjected to arbitrary detention to try to force that kind of indoctrination and loyalty. So this effort by the Chinese government seems to be really like big and, and, and massive. And I have to imagine it involves like a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of money. What's like the the political goal from the perspective of like the Chinese government for doing what they're doing? It, it seems like a huge investment of resources. And I guess it's unclear to me what they're hoping to get out of it. Well, I think what they're hoping for is the total political loyalty of all people in that region. And in, in the minds of senior and regional Chinese leaders, that now really seems to mean effectively eradicating aspects of a Uyghur identity that are perceived as fundamentally incompatible uh, with being a good citizen of the PRC. So they're only supposed to be Muslim up to the point that the state likes that. They're only supposed to speak Uyghur in minimal circumstances, and they're supposed to be equally, if not more, conversant in Mandarin. They are supposed to happily demonstrate their loyalty to the party and the state. They are not supposed to maintain ties with people outside the country, whether that's other ethnic Turkic minorities, whether that's uh, uh, you know, having family members who've gone overseas to study. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to contemplate what's happening in terms of eradicating an ethnic minority because the, the Chinese government isn't using the kind of overt violence, for example, that we saw in Rakhine State with the Rohingya in Burma last year. Uh, but it's effectively making it impossible for Uyghurs to live their identity as they wish, even though that's guaranteed under Chinese and international law. So, so one just quick question: How many sure. um, people do we estimate? Do you estimate are in these re-education centers? It's a fine question, and it's one of much contention at the moment. And different people have gone about trying to come up with numbers in different ways. I think the credible estimates that are offered up, for example, by scholars like Adrian Zenz, who's, who's a German academic, or organizations like Chinese Human Rights Defenders, have the figure at somewhere between half a million and a million people. And how, uh, what's the, the total Uyghur population in China? The total Uyghur population is about 11 and a half million people. So that's like a really so, big percentage yeah. of the population. You're talking about- Yeah, like, I mean, you'll you know, see people 10%. talking about- 10 to 15 percent of the population, you know, and there have been there have been very good, uh, very credible reports detailing, for example, a particular village where all of the men and boys have disappeared. Or, you know, one of the ways, Mark, we started hearing about this problem over a year ago was that people in the Uyghur diaspora were coming to us and saying, I haven't been able to contact these 10, 15, 20 family members in months now, and we don't know what's happened to them. 
you know, and there have been periods in the past where communication between people inside and outside the region has been shut down. Uh, but it, it became clear as time went by that it wasn't just that people couldn't call their relatives or that people weren't just answering the phone. It was that they had been taken away. Uh, and, you know, over time, those numbers start to add up. But of course, you know, the best way to know how many people are detained is for the Chinese government to allow in independent investigators to look at these facilities and find out exactly how many people have been locked up. But they barely admit that these facilities exist. That's correct. That's correct. And the Chinese government is notoriously hostile to the idea of external scrutiny of its review and you get or of its of its its track record, particularly on Xinjiang related issues. And that was very much at play in uh, the racial discrimination review in Geneva a couple of weeks ago. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens when the Human Rights Council goes into session in a couple of weeks. It's also uh, going to be very interesting to see what China has to say for itself when it's up for universal periodic review, also at the Human Rights Council uh, in November. So, so just, just an aside, the universal periodic review is this practice at the Human Rights Council in which every country on the planet submits themselves to uh, to, to critique from other member states at the Human Correct. Rights Council that, that examine their human rights records. It's just like a, an aspect of the Human Rights Council to explain to people who who might not, not know. Um, Correct. To what extent is what's happening in Xinjiang province right now, sort of akin to what happened in Tibet like 15 years ago? It's different in the sense that, uh, you know, first of all, the Chinese government has a much harder time claiming the terrorism narrative uh, in Tibet. And it's really important, I think, to understand that, the you know, the U.S.'s so-called war on terror handed the Chinese government a wonderful propaganda coup. Uh, because across, you know, the aughts, the Chinese were able to say, we too are carrying out war on terror at home. Uh, we too have restive, problematic, violent Muslims, you know, for which they provided no evidence, largely because there wasn't much. Uh, you know, but it but it it played. And people around the world, and particularly in some governments, have accepted that narrative that there either is or could be a problem related to terrorism in Xinjiang. And I think that's that's part of the reason why a lot of the world has been fairly quiet about what's happened there. Tibet is a little bit of a different story where we've seen that same, um, you know, dispatch of tens of thousands of party and government workers across the plateau to sort of infiltrate and monitor communities. But it's played out differently in that region, largely through managing uh, and I use that term in quotes, you know, managing religious institutions, managing language in a way that gives the state a lot of control without having to resort to things like arbitrarily detaining large numbers of people. Mm -hmm. I think they feel more confident that they've got that situation under control and don't feel the need to use things like political education facilities. You know, they've achieved their goals through other means. So the the situation in um, Xinjiang province is that the right term province or it's sort of like its own kind of territory? It's a region. Region, the region. Um, sort of came onto to my radar and I think a lot of other people's radars in two thousand nine when there were were riots. Mm -hmm. um, how much of an inflection point were those riots to what's happening today? <laughs> Sorry, I had to cough. That's all right. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate you struggling through your head cold <laughs> speaking with me. Um, I think the 2009 riots were uh, important on a couple of different levels. It was 
one of the first really, or, or the most recent, quite visible to the outside world uh, flare-ups in Xinjiang. You know, there had been other instances of violence, uh, but they weren't as visible. And what happened in Urumqi, I think, also and gave... Urumqi's the, the, the capital of this region. Uh, yeah. Correct. Uh, what happened there... Uh, you know, including some, you know, violent behavior that resulted in civilian deaths and the deaths of Han, uh, you know, and footage of, you know, Uyghurs engaging in violent acts. You know, this was, again, this was a terrific propaganda coup for the state, which then used what happened in 2009 as justification to radically scale up the presence of the security forces in the region to introduce a raft of new policies both about, you know, use of language and about religion uh, that I think went a long way towards significantly alienating, uh, further alienating the Uyghur community. Uh, You know, we did uh, some work in the immediate wake of those protests to show that large numbers of Uyghur men and boys were taken away, were, were, were enforceably disappeared uh, in the wake of those protests. And, you know, there was never really any further information about what happened to those people or any, you know, credible, impartial investigation, let alone an examination of the policies and the frustrations that, that led to the protests in the first place that would have mitigated tensions in the region. Instead, uh, you know, the way the authorities played those protests really deepened the hostilities and I think what we're seeing now is, to some extent, the downstream effect of what happened in 2009. So, so can I ask, like, why is um, this situation becoming um, more pronounced now? Why, why do like the number of people being brought into these reeducation centers and sort of the, the general like harassment of Uyghurs seems to be like accelerating right now? Well, I think it's because the central and regional authorities uh, don't see the kind of fealty they want that makes them comfortable. And they think this is the way to produce that outcome. And they think they can get away with it. And, you know, the response of the outside world has to be, no, no, you can't do that. You know, that is a gross human rights violation. Uh, And frankly, you know, I think people need to be concerned about this, partly because of the never again narrative, right, that says, you know, we, the world, are not going to allow ethnic minorities to be subjected to this kind of horrific treatment. But also, you know, I think people have to think longer term, first of all, what this says about about the contemporary Chinese leadership and its role in the world as it becomes increasingly powerful, and to know that these are the kinds of tactics it resorts to. I think you also have to ask questions about, you know, what it means for radicalization in the region. You know, this is sort of a textbook case of what not to do. <laughs> you know, if if you are trying to accommodate and respect key cultural, religious, linguistic differences, you don't persecute people for precisely that in this way. So, uh, what can the rest of of the world do to, to pressure China? I, I mean, you know, it seems like sort of bleak. I mean, you know. Here in the United States, you know, we have a president who's sort of indifferent to human rights in general and hostile to Muslims in particular. Right. Similar, you know, so, similar, like you know, in 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 Russia, uh, what what can the world do to 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 press China here? I think there are a couple of different avenues that that governments in the UN need to jump on 
urgently. And I, I mean, I, I agree with all of the premises that you, that you set out there. Uh, you know, and it's difficult because China is so influential within the UN system. It's not a party to the Rome statute. You know, it's a certain kind of... This is the, of, uh, the, the International Criminal Courts uh, framing right. statute, the Rome statute, yeah. You know, so a lot of the kinds of avenues to justice uh, you know, that, that you might pursue in other circumstances are really closed off for Uyghurs. But that said, you know, a number of governments around the world, the U.S. has, has codified this most explicitly in the Global Magnitsky Act, can certainly sanction individual Chinese uh, uh, leaders who are involved uh, in abuses in Xinjiang. Chen Tuanguo, who's the current party secretary, in Xinjiang is probably the top candidate for that treatment. Hmm. You know, we could see governments come together and agree that they are themselves going to work to compile evidence of abuses in Xinjiang with a view towards creating pressure on China to stop. We could certainly see actors within the UN system, the special rapporteurs, uh, you know, you could see joint statements in the Human Rights Council come together. Again, that would put some pressure on uh, on Beijing. I think one step lots of governments could take, uh, you know, that, that not only speaks to this particular problem, but also points to China's growing influence worldwide, is simply for all of the governments that have Uyghur diasporas in their countries. That's the US, Germany, Turkey, Australia. There are lots of you know, Uyghurs that live all over the world. You know, to see governments actively reach out to those communities and collect the information about missing family members, even, you know, even if those governments like the U.S., for example, aren't in a position necessarily to investigate what's happened to those people. I think it's incredibly important to understand that what's happening in Xinjiang doesn't stay in Xinjiang. It's affecting people who are in the U.S. and who are U.S. citizens. You know, and, and therefore, governments around the world <laughs> have to say to Beijing, your abuses affect our people. And it's not acceptable. Uh, you know, I think that gives governments another lever to pull in pressure in Beijing. Uh, well, Sophie, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Sure. Happy to chat. And I hope it didn't sound too, I hope it sounds okay for no, your Yeah, purposes. yeah. It, it sounded good. I, I just like was, was okay, worried cool. about, worried about you, but you, 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 nah. you made it. Okay, good. Thank it's you. all good. I appreciate it. All right. It. Thanks very okay. much. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Sophie. That was very helpful. And big thank you to Sophie for uh, speaking with me through a uh, rough head cold. I appreciate that. But it was an important conversation. And I'm really glad uh, glad we, we featured this topic. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.